Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone. It's Lydia Finette with Claim Your Confidence, broadcasting out of Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Plaza. I am so excited for my guest today. Farnoosh Sharabi is the multi-bestselling financial author, CNBC host, and creator of the award-winning So Money podcast. She's joined us fresh off an appearance from the Today Show. We are going to talk about money. We are going to dive in. I have so many questions after a short word from our sponsors. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, and I am delighted to be speaking with Farnoosh Tarabi, the multi-bestselling financial author of the brand new Healthy State of Panic, Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life. Farnoosh is such an amazing woman on so many levels. She is a personal financial expert, if ever there was, because she talks to women about money in a way that we can understand. Farnoosh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lydia. I am also a huge fan. So mutual admiration, adoration society. And as I said before we started, you have come straight from the Today Show because today is the release of your book, A Healthy State of Panic, Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life. So first and foremost, thank you for being here on such a busy day because I know what book launch day is. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good, which I think coming from, and you and I are similar in this way, like we're really hard workers. It's really hard for us to like really celebrate those wins because yeah. it's all about like hustle, hustle, hustle. But I'm really enjoying today. And I think it helps to have started this campaign. I've been calling it a campaign for nine months. It used to be you just would work on your book launch like for a month. And now I feel like it's a marathon. And I've been pacing myself. And so I knew this day was going to come and I didn't want to be overwhelmed. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here with you and just doing what I want to do. Yeah. It's funny because I don't think people really realize how much goes into not only writing a book, but marketing a book. And we're going to dive into your life, but you have written a number of books. How many books have you written in total? Four. Four this books. This is my fourth book. Yeah. It's amazing. And each one not only takes the time that it takes to write, but then you have to actually edit the book with the editor. And that takes all like all in basically before you publish it almost a year. Right. It is insane to think about how long it actually takes to publish. But I think it's never good to rush the book process. I'm on the one hand antsy, right? You want to get it out in the world, but also so grateful for these revisions and the time that we had to really think very carefully about what we were going to include and what we were going to omit and edit. And I mean, the editing process is, you know, you think you submit the manuscript and, oh, I'm done. No, like the work <laughs> exactly. has kind of just begun, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. I remember turning in my first one and being like, oh, good. Well, you know, I get yeah. the check. I turned it in on time and then it came back right. and I was like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> Round two. Yeah. Just a first draft. Just okay, got it. a first draft. Exactly. Well, I always like to start off this podcast by asking people about where they came from. And I want to mm -hmm. start off by just saying that money is one of the topics that I am so passionate about because I did not grow up in a family where we talked about money. And I know so many people who felt the same way. And I know so many people who still feel that way. And I think it's even more pronounced because we're women. So mm -hmm. start me off with 
who you were when you were little, Farnoosh. Were you a confident young child? What was money in your family? Because this really is your life and your platform. Yes. And my book, A Healthy State of Panic, is really the culmination of my 40 plus years living life afraid. And it starts back to my early years living in Worcester, Massachusetts. I am the daughter of Iranian immigrants. My parents moved here in the late 70s. I was born in 1980 in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a wonderful city, but I think in the 80s, uh, you know, second largest city in that state, it was a rough and tough city. And the New York Times called it nobody's first choice. Oh. And uh, <laughs> Really? Is that true? Yes, I quote. And not only that, though, my parents, remember, they're, they're new to this country. My mother doesn't speak English. She doesn't have a license. She's 19 years old. And she was afraid. And I think I inherited a lot of her fears. She's even said, you know, I intentionally made you afraid of all the things, strangers, being alone, because I wanted to keep you safe. And as a kid, that got me into a little bit of trouble. I overreacted to fear. And even as an adult woman, I think I took that fear and misused it in my 20s. And I sort of had to course correct and learn um, how to have a healthier relationship with fear. And money and fear are sort of two peas in a pod in growing up in our household on the one hand, there were some pluses. My parents, as they are Middle Eastern, our culture does not think money is or should be taboo. Mm -hmm. We talk about it quite often, but in all of the emotional ways, right? And I remember for me growing up, the sound of money is like fists banging on a table because there are a lot of arguments around money in my house growing up. That's such an interesting way to yeah. describe it. And so was that in a negative way, fist banging against money because people are upset or is this just culturally something that people were doing? Well, they had legitimate friction in their marriage, my parents, around money. My dad was the sole breadwinner and I think traditionally and as a man, he felt like this was his territory. Mm-hmm. He didn't really include my mother in a lot of the decision-making. My mother was longing for her independence and money is a huge tool towards independence. And so they argued a lot about their collective decision-making around money and my mother not having her own money. And it actually propelled her to go out there and get educated and get a job and start saving. So I credit her for actually listening to her fears around losing her sense of financial independence Mm -hmm. and doing something about it. And so I witnessed all of this. I witnessed the good, the bad, the loud, the quiet. And I have to say in the moment, maybe I didn't feel great when I was hearing the arguments through the thin walls of our apartment, but it really made me who I am today, which is a woman who is fiercely independent when it comes to money. I am married, but we have a lot of conversations about money. I am the breadwinner, not necessarily because I'm forcing it, but because it is my happy place in some ways. Like I love to be able to contribute. And if that means contributing significantly, like all the better. I don't wanna be someone who like my mother in the early parts of her marriage was dependent. And I see this still in modern relationships where it's really hard to detach from these patriarchal and generational methods of money. And still to this day, a lot of women, they'll say, I'm really good at making money, but I'm really bad at managing it. So I'll let my husband do all of the money management. And they don't know passwords to accounts. They don't know if God forbid something happens to their husband and he can't pay the bills that month and he's, you know, sick or whatever. 
they wouldn't know where to begin. And that's yeah. just easily avoidable. And yet we don't allow the fear of that uncertainty drive us to a healthier place of actually doing something about it today yeah. to prepare ourselves for some of these worst case what ifs. And it's interesting too, and we were discussing this before the podcast started, how when people find themselves in a place where they are fearful about money, instead of doing something educating themselves, going out there and learning about it, they tend to bury their heads in the sand and pretend it isn't there. Right. And I wonder when you talk about, you know, your mom and finding this independence, did you ever see her do that? Or was it always the inverse where she was just like, this isn't working for me. I need to go make my own money and have my own financial independence. Or did you see her sort of also doing the other thing? Because you talk a lot about fear in your book, obviously. I think that for her, it's been a growth journey. I mean, remember she was in her early 20s and new to marriage, new to motherhood, new to money, new to America. Yeah. So I give her a lot of grace, right? She had to sort of, she was finding herself while she was trying to figure out her role as a wife and a mom. And, and even during all of that, she quickly realized just how important money is to mm -hmm. someone's sense of independence and feeling like they have flexibility and optionality and really power. I think that it just was the sort of thing where as she made more, she did build that confidence. She was able to sort of feel like it was her right to approach my father and ask for information. And my dad, I think is a lot like, you know, his peers of his generation, particularly Middle Eastern. But I think I don't even want to say it's like just certain cultures. I think this is very much a universal approach where we we genderize money, right? Yeah. It's a man's world. It's a man's domain. It's almost as if my father went to my mother and said, I want to start cooking all the meals now. I want to start managing the social calendar. I want to start deciding I'm in charge the of household the laundry. budget. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, that would be great. Yeah, seriously. I'm like, by the way. But you can see where initially the person who's used to having that be their domain, feeling like it's an affront or feeling as though suddenly my partner doesn't trust me or wants to mess things up, so to speak. And I think that, um, again, witnessing all of that, I was like, I remember being a kid being like, I just need two things to, when I grow up to become independent. I need a license and I need money. <laughs> and I'm gonna get a job. My mom had yeah. none of those things yeah. when I was, until I was about four or five years old. It was a simplified measure of independence, but you better believe I was like, got my permit right away when I was 15. <laughs> it's amazing how sometimes just when you're growing up, you see something and at that point, you don't realize it's going to be such a huge part of your life. You know, money for us, I always felt like it was something that we never talked about. I didn't really know anything about it. And as a result, my spending when I was in my early 20s in New York was completely out of control. And yeah. my best friend who, God bless her, Corinne James, Corinne Minacho, was a financial advisor and she was the one who really taught me about credit cards. You know, I was like, you don't have to pay those minimums. Meanwhile, I was ruining seven years of credit. By the way, pay your minimum for your credit card. I don't know where yeah. I got that idea, but don't do that. You know, all these little things that I would say to her and she would just stare at me with her mouth open. And that for me was my financial education and that moment where I realized like, there's no one else coming. I need to figure this out and I need to yes. take ownership. And you said it, financial literacy is power because if it you don't is. know where your money is, what are you doing? And I think the way that you were raised, Lydia, is so common. Yeah. And to this day, I mean, I hear from people who are very smart and very well-rounded and traveled and cultured and they're like, we just don't talk about money. Yeah. 
And I think because, and I talked about this on the Today Show this morning, but there is this myth in our culture that is so pervasive that our self-worth equates to net worth. Mm -hmm. And so unless you are somebody who is extremely wealthy, even then people don't talk about it because I think that it's, it, it is, money does feel so intertwined and attached to our ego, our sense of accomplishment. And we're always, I think, in our financial lives, striving. Yeah. We're always striving for more, for different, for better. And so to certainly like to open up about money, we feel like we're opening up about our lives and our fears and our ambitions. And that feels very private. And that's not always something that we are used to talking about. So I completely get it. But I think that what's scarier, and this is where the healthy panic can come in. It's like sometimes you're afraid of certain aspects of your financial life today, but I always encourage people to sort of extrapolate. Like imagine you just allow this fear to keep you stuck, to keep you quiet, to keep you not talking about money. What is that going to mean for you in 10 years or yeah. in 20 years or next year? This is not a sustainable approach to your life, yeah. frankly, to your livelihood. And so I predict a much scarier outcome down the road because you decided to bury your head in the sand today because you thought that's what your fear wanted you to do. When fear shows up in your financial life, it is often a signal to you that either you need to get more educated or you need to really be careful about the risks that you might be taking. Mm -hmm. Fear shows up for a reason. Fear is usually this instinct that wants us to protect what we value, especially at life's huge intersections like our financial decisions, our career decisions, our relationship choices. And so I always say when fear shows up in these high stakes moments, it's worth it to just take a beat and look at that fear, ask it questions, and try to determine what it could possibly be telling you about how to approach your next endeavor mm -hmm. so that you do that thing with confidence and never neglecting your fear, but really like leveraging it to say, okay, I'm afraid, why? Is there something that I need to be on the lookout for? Is there something I need to be vigilant about? Is there something I'm not paying attention to that I really should? Is there something that I don't know? Mm -hmm. In which case I need to go get, you know, the literacy. Fear loves to hang out when there is a gap in knowledge, in in sort of in resources, um, even in confidence. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think that fear like mold, right? Like it, it like loves water. Fear loves when there are gaping holes in our lives. you found yourself in New York in your 20s having an o your own moment of panic. Do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think we would have been great friends in our 20s, Lydia. <laughs> we would have like really... Blown uh, through our credit cards. No minimums. Seriously. Here we go. And I think it says a lot, right? Because I grew up again in a home where maybe money was more fluent. We talked about money. And my dad was actually quite insistent when I was in my college years telling me about what what's credit and educating me about credit and credit cards. But... I just think when you're on your own for the first time and you're tasked with spending for yourself for the first time in New York City, which there's a lot of temptation, you're gonna mess up. You're yeah. just gonna, like yeah. there's gonna be a bad month or many bad months. I just think that's a growing pain. Yeah, <laughs> I was lucky enough where I had a job so I could pay off the debt and I had side hustles, but I was about $30,000 in debt at 23. Much of that was graduate student loan debt plus some credit card debt. I was making $18 an hour before taxes. I had New York City rent. I had 
you know, a lot on my plate. And so I was terrified of like never being able to actually have freedom in my life. Yeah. And New York's, you know, it really kicks your butt, New York. You yeah. really, <laughs> it sure um, does. It's not where I recommend people go to try to save money. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's a great place to try to make money. Yeah. And I pulled that lever hard. I, you know, didn't spend as much, but where I really improved my financial life was my earnings because I felt like I can't control how much things cost in New York, but perhaps I can control what I'm bringing in. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I have this full-time job, but what else can I do? I work in media. This is the media mecca of the world. There have to be tons of freelance opportunities. And also I babysat and also I pet sat because I wanted to get out of debt so bad. Ultimately, those jobs helped me kind of keep head above water. And then I got a book deal, which was in my mid twenties. And I used a lot of that advance to pay off my student loans entirely. I remember it was like one, you know, $25,000 payment and it felt incredible. And when you say that you got a book deal, let's back up because another thing that we were kind of discussing was the small leading to the big, which is something I feel like I say this a lot to people. You know, people are all about the big hit. They're all about the unicorn company. I'm like, guys, it's the small things that we do day to day that lead to the big. So in your case, what were these small things that you were doing that led to the book deal, which you casually mentioned as if it was easy to get? And then there was the book deal. It wasn't overnight. No way. It was, it started with me first trying to just get myself settled financially in New York. And I wasn't trying to get rich by any means. I was just trying to get out of debt and then have a little bit of money so I wouldn't have an anxiety attack every time we'd go to a restaurant with friends and the bill would come. (laughs) Please don't decline my credit card again. (laughs) Yeah, credit card. How about try debit card? Like I was penny pinching back then, but I just began to leverage all my relationships and networks to create additional revenue streams. So I use that to pay for my bills, but the jobs that I selected while I did babysit and pet sit, a lot of them were freelance writing gigs. Mm -hmm. And I found myself writing a lot about personal finance. I was a business journalist, but I felt as though I had a lot of interest in talking about how to, as I was, you know, making ends meet in a very expensive city as a young person. Mm -hmm. So I had this column in a free newspaper called AM New York. I think it's still around. It's still around. It, yeah, I usually see it littered all over the street in Tribeca where we yeah, live. It's like, <laughs> it's like pulled out and thrown on the street, but yes. I think it actually has the biggest circulation in the city. It's free for readers and they distribute it largely on the subways and in public spaces. And I had a column where every week I talked about how to save. And those columns ultimately stitched together, created my first book proposal, which was about how to live rich, even when you're not. <laughs> it's very Carrie Bradshaw, you yeah, know, it's, it's like a very book. sex in the city, like all of these articles coming together well, to create a book. Do you know what? Also, I had a friend at the time who was writing a relationship column for, I think it was the same newspaper. He had a relationship column. I had a money column and he said, I got a book deal. And I said, what? Okay. <laughs> I need well, a book deal. maybe I could get a book deal, yeah. you know, cause you have no platform except this column. And I have the same column, except it's about money. And he inspired me to think bigger and think of what could be the next potential. And so I started just shopping around the idea and that, you know, the the seed was planted. And then maybe two, three years later, I got a book deal because as 
just behind the scenes. I mean, you have to write the proposal, you have to find an agent. Um, the agent has and, to shop it around. Somebody has to actually want it. You have to rewrite right. that proposal to make sure that people actually want what you're selling. It takes time. Small and things this is take back time. in the day where people weren't self-publishing. It was it was traditional publish or bust. Yeah. So you kind of were beholden to this very traditional industry and their timeline. But I will say that you're right. It's the small gets the big. Yeah. And I think always feeling like I was always looking for opportunities. Mm -hmm. I just, that was the lens through which I looked at the world. I remember being at Money Magazine. I was 20, I don't know, two. I was a glorified intern. I was like the junior, junior reporter. And one day the publicist for the magazine came into the newsroom and said, CNN would like to invite somebody from the staff to come on and talk about our new issue, which was like, you know, the 10 best places to live in America. And nobody raised their hand. And I said, I'll go. You couldn't get over that desk fast enough. You're like, it's she me. Goes, <laughs> I know. I was like, first of all, I'm so unqualified, right? I yeah. just got here, but I'll do it. Yeah. Because I knew that getting a live hit on CNN at my age was going to help me skip so many years of trying to prove myself to the powers that be in New York City media. Yeah. Because not everyone gets to get on CNN. No. And then, you know, they don't need to know that I was the only one in the newsroom that raised my hand. It wasn't like I got selected and they wanted me. It was like I was the warmest and most readiest body in the room. But I did it. And I just said to, I remember thinking to myself in the cab right there as I'm like, reviewing the press release and just trying to memorize sentences. I said, it's just three minutes, talk slow, let the anchor fill up all the air, <laughs> smile. You know what I mean? Like all those things, you're just like, just all those things fine. like, it's fine. And it's just, it's going to be fine. Like forget anyone's watching and make sure you just get the tape. Yeah. You know, get the tape, get, get the someone clip. at CNN, like talk to a friend who knows a friend to get the tape. And then I use that tape for a couple jobs afterwards. And it was always a highlight. First and foremost, and Farnish, you won't be the first guest who I've said this about, but there's so much about you that is about the hustle. And mm -hmm. I can't overstate it enough for people who are listening how important it is to be hungry. Because when you're hungry, it leads you to the second thing that you just brought up, which is putting your hand forward, putting yourself yeah. forward, and yeah. not being afraid to jump over that desk and be the person who goes on camera that day and isn't 100% sure. Those two things add up to putting you in the right place at the right time. But unless you self-select in there, things don't happen. So mm -hmm. when people say like, oh, luck gets you there, it's like sometimes luck gets you in the room. But what makes your luck is you setting yourself forward and being okay selling yourself to people and believing and being confident enough in yourself that you'll figure it out on the fly. So I applaud you for that. And I would Thank also you. ask, you've written this book now and you're now, I'm probably at this point getting a lot of inbound requests about money. You're now a financial expert in a world that was not what it is today, which is like every single person has a podcast or something on Instagram where they're answering everyone's questions and you have absolutely no idea what their history is or how they got there. And they're, you know, they have a million followers and you're just sort of like, is this even real? Yeah. Like, what is this they, person's they were, background? They were, they were on TikTok during the pandemic and yes. 
Have a calculator. Got lucky, like, figure it out. I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And viral. I was busy with kids and yeah. <laughs> crying in the shower during yeah. the pandemic. I was not dilly-dallying on TikTok. There are probably a lot of people nodding when you say that too. But this book for you, this first book for you was that TikTok moment in a way. All of a sudden the TV shows are noticing you. And what does that feel like? I mean, I can say from my own experience with a book, it's kind of incredible to put out a book and see results like that. Tell me about your experience. It was unbelievable. And I didn't understand why people wanted to talk to me. You know, I thought that I'll put out this book and it'll make me some money. My mom will be really proud. I would love to get some speaking engagements around it. But never did I think that it would kick off a partnership with the Today Show, that it would kick off brand partnerships with financial institutions who would buy my book and distribute it or invite me to come speak. And I just thought it was a new world. It was a whole new world, I think. And I was just at the right place at the right time. I remember getting the first call about a bank wanting to buy my books and put me out on a college tour. And I said, do they know I'm not a celebrity? Do they know that I'm not an athlete? Because this is not my world. Like I'm a journalist. I'm not doing a brand deal. And it was a huge learning curve. I remember even my agent, I worked with him so I could get a job at CNBC, right? Or a television job. He wasn't doing brand deals. And now that's all he does, right? Because that's just kind of where the market's gone for people who have influence. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm really recognizing now is that what I didn't recognize that I had then was influence. That I was just doing my job, I thought, right? I was just being me, but from the outside world, from, you know, businesses and partners, they all wanted to sort of work with me because I, I guess, potentially was being seen as someone who could be convincing. (laughs) But a young woman who was authentically living the life of the books that she was writing and therefore probably didn't feel overwhelming to someone who was watching you on TV and you're like, I'm $30,000 in debt and it took some hot side hustles and everyone's like, wait, I could do that. Like, I could create a side hustle. I'm not a licensed financial advisor. I didn't work on Wall Street. I'm not wearing a suit. I'm not your father's accountant. I am... I think at that point, I was a fresh face and a fresh personality where I think I can count on my hand the number of household name personal finance experts we had. And a lot of them were of a different generation and not like your peer, you know? And I think there was a huge underserved market of women, women of color, young women. And fast forward to today, I see so many great talented people talking about money, being leaders in this space. And it has become far more inclusive than it ever has been. Yeah. The other thing that it's been really nice, and I don't know where we intersected along the way, but I'd say probably a decade ago. And an interesting thing, and I saw this during the pandemic as well, was you're so open to sharing what's going on in your own life. Like I definitely remember a piece of content. I can't even remember if I saw it on YouTube. I can't remember where I saw it, but I remember watching it. And it was about, you were talking about buying a house, versus oh, yeah. renting a house and where you were in your own process. And you've been very open about having children, being married, being the breadwinner in the family as a woman, which is another highly, highly hidden topic that yeah. I'm always talking about with my friends about how women who are breadwinners tend to not tell everyone because they don't want to hurt anyone. You wrote a book about it. So how did that book come out? What did you see from that? That book was the book before this one, and it was called When She Makes More. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was ready for writing a book for women. I hadn't really focused exclusively on women as an author. And I didn't want to just 
add sort of echo chamber of like, you go girl, you got it girl, build your confidence. I felt like all those books were written and all those books were well done. Like I don't have any more to contribute to that space. And I remember my English teacher in high school, whenever we were at a, having a writer's block or didn't know what to do, she'd say, write what you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if I were to write a book today about something a little complex in my own life, that even with my experience as a financial expert and educator, I'm at a loss a little bit for knowing how to navigate it, it would be this. It Mm -hmm. would be being the breadwinner, making more than my husband. I don't feel shame or weirdness around it, but I will say that it's not something that I will just openly share with people. And why is that? Mm -hmm. I wanted to know why I wasn't comfortable a little bit publicly about it. And also I was like, I can't believe that I'm the only person in this wearing my shoes. Like I feel like I'm in New York and there are a lot of successful women here and I'm going to talk to them about this because I feel like maybe there is a whole world that we haven't exposed and haven't talked to. And turns out you were right. lots of women and not just in New York, across the country. And then just looking at the data too, that was um, coming out more and more at the time, looking at the number of women breadwinners in households, it had jumped, it had quadrupled since the 60s. And a lot of that was attributed to where we were in the world as far as more women getting more educated, more women graduating from high school, college and graduate school than men, more women basically becoming homeowners before 30, more than men. Then there was also the recession, which was dubbed the man session. This was the great recession of 2008, 2009. Yeah a lot of men because the industries that were hardest hit, finance, real estate, construction. So these male dominated industries and a lot of women went back to work who maybe weren't working. And so suddenly the economic paradigm was shifting in a lot of households. And I thought, this is timely. This is personal to me. And I think that it's taboo. So always when you write a book, you kind of want to tap the zeitgeist, but also feel like you're introducing something that's going to make everybody pause and think and reflect and have conversation. And that book definitely did that. I will say that it was 2014 when it came out. And while I got a lot of press, I think still that women and men were hesitant to buy the book. Like I actually had someone reach out to me the other day and she was like, I love your book. When she makes more, I bought it. But my husband doesn't know that I read it. He doesn't know that I follow you and that I make more in my marriage and it's a real, you know, it's contentious. And I don't want him ever to feel as though, you know, I'm flaunting it or, and I'm like, wow, it's 2023. And we're still, we're still here. We're here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm sure that there are so many things and there were so many conversations that you had after that. There was one I had after the most powerful woman in the room as you came out. I remember doing a talk and this woman came up to me afterwards. I I was on the Upper East Side in this absolutely beautiful apartment. And there were, I think like 15 or 20 people. It was a book talk. And this woman came over to me and she said, you know, I've been listening to your speech and I have this reoccurring nightmare that my husband loses his job and we lose everything. And I, at that point, had been working for 20 years. And it's always been, I I guess I'm a lot like you in every way that you've talked about. I'm a hustler. I have side hustles. I always have. I love it. I love working. I love making money. Like, send me a check. I love nothing more. I will say that until the day I die. I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. Figuring out how to make more is also fun. I hope everyone who's listening who doesn't feel comfortable saying that can embrace those words for for yourself. But I remember thinking to myself, that's got to be a really scary place to be where you are 
in a situation where the only thing that you're looking at is someone else to fulfill every dream you have financially. And you as a person are scared about that to the point that you're waking up at three o'clock in the morning every single morning. And I have always felt like you want to have a conversation like the one that we're having right now. People should read that book because whether or not you're the breadwinner, one thing, total conversation, but just being in a place where you're financially savvy enough to understand what's going on in your own world, in your own marriage, in your own life, and empowering yourself to get a side hustle, to try something new and to make money of your own, even if your husband is a breadwinner, I think is a very important conversation to have too that a lot of people don't have. And I'm sure that your book opened that door as well. I hope it did. And I hope this book too does that, the healthy state of panic. I mean, you're talking about waking up in the middle of the night with sweats. I think that when fear shows up in that way, it's really trying to get our attention. Yeah. And it's not saying keep the status quo. No. It's saying, please do something. Yeah. And it could be small steps. You know, it's not like revolutionize your dynamic and your your financial dynamic and your relationship tomorrow, but it's like, can you just start to learn more about what your financial reality is in your relationship? Do you know where things are? Do you know how much your partner makes? Believe it or not, people don't talk about these things. You know, they know maybe ballpark, but they don't know actually what the totality of their net income is as a household. That's basic. And I think if you don't know that, and you're feeling terrified, it's for good reason. You know, this is your fear telling you, please get educated. And then after that, go and maybe take some action in terms of securing your own finances, which may mean opening up your own bank account, getting a side hustle or a part-time job or a full-time job. And then, you know, I want to mention that it's not just, I think, and we're talking sort of hetero relationships right now, but whatever relationship dynamic you have, if there's one person who is the only income earner that person I think needs to also wake up to the fear of how delicate the household is, how fragile the household is as a result of that. It's no secret that one income households are more financially vulnerable than dual income households. And both are hard in terms of, you know, especially you get kids in the picture. I'm not saying like, oh, it's so much easier to have two incomes, but when it does come down to the finances and what if there's a job loss, like you have another job to fall back on. I think that it is proven that with dual income households, there is a bit of less stress around money. Yeah, and I can speak from that in personal experience. I mean, I wrote in my second book, my husband lost his job. He just started a new job like four months before COVID started. And it's like last one in, first one out. I mean, we knew it was coming, but I think the stress was not as intense as it could have been because at that point I still had my full-time job. So, I mean, I do feel, especially having gone through what we've gone through during COVID, it's been a really interesting time that's upended a lot of those conversations about who makes what and who makes more. And my hope in conversations like this is just that we get to the place where it's a partnership and that it's not like you're pointing at the other person saying, this is what I want. This is what this looks like. This is how I want you to get it. But rather like, how are we as partners going to make this work in our life, in our financial journey that we're on together? Exactly. Whenever I interviewed successful couples for my book, When She Makes More, around this topic, couples where she makes more, I would talk to the husbands too. And I'd say, what do you think it is about your relationship where you have less friction than maybe someone else that's like really having a hard time? And they'd say, well, because we throw our egos out the door. We don't attach our sense of duty or contribution to our genders. And literally what you said, we just do what we need to do to make it work. Yeah. And it works so much better like that. It really does. I mean, I can say my husband and I have been on this path for a very long time. And 
I feel like we're in the best place we've ever been in that respect because a lot of the stuff that we both grew up in very traditional or what could be seen as traditional homes with, you know, moms and dads who were married and our fathers worked. My mother-in-law sold real estate. My mom sells real estate now. But, you know, it was really very much like dad and mom. These are the roles that we have. This is traditional. This is what this looks like. And so, you know, we have come in and out of that over the course of our marriage. And it's been really interesting moments of high, moments of low. But I think what we both would say if we were on this podcast with you right now is exactly that. Like when you treat Mm -hmm. it as a partnership, when you don't look at money as you do this, I do this, but rather like, what are we doing as a couple? Mm -hmm. You're going to ultimately end up in a much healthier place and hopefully not a healthy state of panic to bring it all back to the book. So one more question for you, and I know we're (laughs) we're kind of running out of time, but your podcast, So Money, is just incredible. Talk to me about how that started and what comes next with So Money. I mean, you've done 1,500 episodes, is that correct? Yes, it's crazy. Having nine years to do that. And then when I started, it was a seven day per week show. I was treating it like a radio show. Yeah, (laughs) I really love the podcast. And I think that's why it took me nine years to write a book. My next book took all like as long as I've been podcasting because I was very focused on building this show. And I started it in 2015. 15 because I had just become a mom and I had a great career, a great, I felt had hit a lot of great success milestones in my career. And I was kind of not sure about where to go next. I knew that I wanted to continue making an impact. I also knew that as a parent with an infant that I didn't want to be on a plane all the time. I didn't want to be getting hair and makeup done in front of a camera all the time. I just, that for me did not seem fun. And so I thought, what's the next platform or what's the next way of creating a conversation with my audience? And this is before really Instagram and you know social media was quite taking off. And so I saw a lot of men in personal finance having podcasts. And I said, well, I think I'm gonna try that because yeah. I have a degree in broadcast journalism And at that point, I felt like I had a dream show in my mind all these years. I was like, if I could ever do a show on my own, it would be interviewing famous people or super successful people about their money, which at the time was very taboo. And I just kind of immediately knew what I would want to do. And because it didn't require a lot of heavy lifting, right? You need a Wi-Fi connection, a solid mic, and that's it. And you're off to the races. I said, this is like low barriers to entry and I can be home while I'm doing this. So this for me was what I call now kind of like the overlapping of these ingredients that I really look for in projects. Projects where there's clearly a market and a viability, Mm -hmm. but that also mostly speaks to where I need to show how I like to show up and how I like to create and how I like to interact. I didn't want to do a YouTube channel because again, like I just didn't want all that high maintenance. I had already done that. So I felt like I was ready for something new and podcasting just felt right to me. And it was a hunch, but I decided that I was going to give it a year before I was worried about monetizing Mm -hmm. because I think that's where you can get easily burnt out. It's a very slow burn. You're not going to make a lot of noise in the first month or two. You're not going to necessarily crush it right away. It's like you said, it's the small leads to the big. Yeah. It's funny. I've had a couple of people call and they're like, so I'm going to start a podcast. So how much money do you think I'm going to make, you know, in the first 
two weeks? And I'm like, I think the answer is negative dollars. <laughs> if it's a value time proposition, right, you know, right. um, but I think like anything, it just takes time. It's like, and you learn and you get better and you take all those lessons with you. And that's the reason you do it. And so ultimately I hope it's paying off for you in a big way, but I am so glad that you do it. Cause I really do think it's such a phenomenal podcast. So I have Thank one last you. question for you. You have two children. What are you doing to teach them about money? What should we as listeners, as a mom of three, what am I doing to ensure that my children have an understanding of money and they don't have a fear of money, but rather they have a healthy relationship with money? One of the things that I learned early on before I was even a parent was that the best thing you can teach your kids, and it's not just really for money skills, it's for life skills, is delaying gratification, which is really hard to teach in 2023, when those Amazon packages come the click, same click. day. Yeah, click, click. And I think I'm very concerned about that, but I'm also, it's heightened my consciousness. You know, it's also important, like they want for things. And it's really important for girls too, little girls. When my daughter wants for something, I don't say, no, we can't afford that. Or no, you can't have that just because. I say, okay, that's interesting. Let's put it on a list. Yes. Put it on your birthday list, put it on your Christmas list. And she's six, so she can do this. And um, what it really teaches her is the importance of reflecting on what you actually want. Because maybe in two weeks, she decides, I don't want that. And she'll yeah. scratch it off and put Unicorn something else on the list. Unicorn two weeks later, surely. <laughs> yeah. And to delay gratification, right? Yeah. We don't live in a world where you could just have things without effort, without waiting, without work. And she, I think more than my son, loves to make money. Yeah. And I hope that he gets there too. But she loves like the whole lemonade stand. Yeah. She's into, she's going to do Girl Scouts. And she's like, mom, we get to sell cookies. It's going to be amazing. I'm like, well, you'll <laughs> learn other things too, but that's cute. But really um, that's she, what Girl Scouts is about to be clear. Yeah, it's, it's about the cookies. The cookies. Let's be yeah. <laughs> Selling the cookies, eating the cookies, keeping as many cookies as you can in the freezer. There's a strategy to Girl Scouts in my opinion. <laughs> Exactly. And so, and honestly, for them at this age, and I think even as they get a little bit older, it's not about sitting down and being like, here's what's compound interest or here. I mean, that's all great. But what really will stick and they will carry with them into their adult life is how we model for them. It's how we talk about money that we even do talk about money is I think leaps and bounds. Just, you know, being open to talk about it when they have curiosity. Like my son asked me the other day, he's like, are we rich or are we poor, you know? And I was waiting for that question. You know, all You're kids like, are going to ask that question. question. <laughs> what yeah, is the answer to, to that question? Yeah. We suffer from comparison culture. They suffer from comparison yeah. culture. We had just gotten home from a play date and we were all invited to this wonderful family's house and it was a giant house, yeah. you know? And and he's like, oh my God, they have this pool and the this and the that. I want to live there. And, you know, I'm like... I love our house, you know, and I think it's about really centering your kids and you know, why don't we have this and why don't we have that? And it's like, well, look, I said, so to answer your question, I always like to ask a question to their question. So if he's like, are we rich? I'll say, what makes you curious? So just really like let them talk more than you do. Because I think you'll learn a lot about their curiosity, where their heads are at. Kids sometimes just want to feel like things are safe. And yeah, maybe there's FOMO too. But I said, you know, ultimately... What's important is how you feel about being rich. It's not whether you are, it's how you feel about being rich. And I said, you know, your dad and I work really hard and we're very careful about how we spend. And we don't have the same house that your friend has and we don't have all the same things, but we have a great life and everything we choose to do is a choice. 
and people are allowed to have different choices. Mm -hmm. Your friend's family chooses differently than ours. And maybe when you get older, you can decide for yourself too. But for now, this is where you live. This is where we live, right? And I think it's great for kids to be exposed to all levels of the economic scale. I grew up in hardworking towns where people were paycheck to paycheck. And then we moved to fancier suburbs. And then ultimately when I was in Philadelphia as a high school kid, we moved to one of the richest zip codes in the country and we were living in an apartment in a two bedroom and there were four of us. And I remember going to high school the first day and literally every other car in the student parking lot was a German car, like a BMW, a Mercedes, and I was taking the bus. And I'm so grateful for meeting all these interesting rich people because I felt like a a fire was lit under me. I was like, I want to be rich. I want to make money. I saw the vacations they took. I saw, and these were very lovely, well rounded. I think our culture demonizes wealthy people. I mean, I think there are terrible people at all income levels, right? I have this personal philosophy around money, which is that it doesn't change who you are, making more of it or less of it. And mean like truly who you are at the core. Like I think more money can make life a lot easier for people for sure. But what I'm trying to say is that your personality doesn't change because you get more rich. I think that actually it just makes you more of who you are. Like at the core, if you are a generous person, even without money, you can demonstrate generosity by giving your time and your feedback and your patience with others. And when you make more money, that's another resource for you to give and share. So all this to say that I'm very grateful for all of the exposure to all the different economies in this world and all the different household shapes and sizes, because they've all taught me so much about the world and my place in it and what my potential is. And for my kids, the same. I think I want them to be able to know that there are people from all walks of life. And, you know, and if you have a rich friend, that's okay too, because there's a lot to learn from all people. But it's really important as a parent that when they come home, they know what our values are. They know that when we come home to our home, we love it, we feel rich, and here's why, because we've made really deliberate choices with our money. And that's at the end of the day, what's important. Yeah, so well said, Varnoosh. This has been such a wonderful interview. I have loved listening to you and I could honestly listen to you speak all day. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for being so transparent about these issues and for really challenging us all to be financially literate. And I hope that our listeners will take that away. So obviously a healthy state of panic is out today. So make sure that you pick it up, but where else can we find you, Farnoosh? Well, the podcast, So Money, I'm not seven days a week anymore. That was a shorter stint, but three days a week on So Money, wherever you listen to podcasts. And I love hanging out in the DMs on Instagram. I do too. I love a good DM. Yeah. I love a good DM. Find me there. If you got questions or whatever's on your mind, I'm I'm usually quick to reach. Uh, And my Instagram handle is at Farnoosh Tarabi. So I just want to leave everyone and our listeners, especially with one question, which is when you think about money, what is your biggest fear? And I challenge you to DM Farnoosh or me and tell us what you're going to do to get over it. Here's your challenge for the week. I hope Mm -hmm. that you will engage in this challenge. I hope that you will jump in with both feet. And remember that when you get through your fear, you're going to find confidence on the other side. 
I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. A huge thank you to Rockefeller Center and to Newsstand Studios and to my trusty producer, Joe, on my left, who makes everything run. It's been a wonderful episode for Anoush. Everyone get the book, Healthy State of Panic, and I can't wait to see you out and about in New York City. Have a great week, everyone. I'll see you next Tuesday. 